This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. All right, folks, since we didn't do it the last two weeks, let's just get it out of the way right now. It's time for a special all-star break, Russell Westbrook update. Russell Westbrook, he can sure score triple-doubles. But he sure as hell can't think straight when he's trying to make a pass. It's the Russell Westbrook update. So when we stopped in the last update in the January 26th taping, the Clippers had beaten the Raptors 127 to 107. The following day at Boston, the Clippers won 115 to 96. Russ only had four points. On January 29th against the Cavs, they lost by 10. Russ had 13 points. Now, Mike, you mentioned to me that you spotted the Clippers team bus when they were in town. Yeah, I worked downtown, uh, maybe about a mile away from Rocket Mortgage Field House, and I knew they stayed at a hotel downtown. So I did a little searching after work one day and there were two buses out front of the Ritz Carlton in downtown Cleveland. I was thinking about parking and maybe seeing what was going on, but I didn't have any change on me and uh, I didn't want to risk uh, my car getting ticketed or towed, but yeah, there are two buses there and Russ was on one of them. So on Wednesday, January 31st, against the Wizards, they won 125-109. Russ had nine points. In Detroit, at Little Caesars on February 2nd, the Clippers won 136-125. Russ scored 23 points. On February 4th, against the Heat, they won 103-95. Russ only scored five points. Against the Hawks the following night, the Clippers won 149-144. Russ scored 13 points. Against the Pelicans on February 7th, they lost 117-106. Russ only scored 4 points. But against the Pistons at Crypto.com Arena on February 10th, Russ scored 13 points. They lost two nights later on February 12th to the Timberwolves. 121 to 100, Russ scored 11 points. But in the last game before the All Star break, on Valentine's Day, Russ was serving up love for the Clipper fans who went to Golden State. What the hell is the name of their new arena at Golden State, Mike? I have no idea. Oh, let me just search. I got it. It's, It's the Chase Center. Oh, the Chase Center. Okay. It's only five years old. Oh, whatever. Five years. Two years. It's still new to me. Especially after that dump Oracle Arena. True. Russ scored 15 points and six assists. So let me just see what the Clippers are right now as we're heading into the All-Star break. So the Clippers in the Western Conference are the three-seed two games back of Minnesota 
Oklahoma City has the two seed. They're a game and a half back of Minnesota. And not far behind the Clippers or the Nuggets, who are three games back of the one seed with the number four seed right now. So, I've mentioned it before, but the Western Conference, the top seed, it's anyone's race. But I will say, Minnesota, they're playing very good. And Oklahoma City, too, because I saw them the other night against the Magic. And I should add one more thing before we close this up. Since the last update, Russell Westbrook hit a huge milestone in his career. He reached 25,000 career points. Oh, that's terrific. But when he said he reached a historic milestone, I thought you were going to say the historic milestone was he made it to Shaq in a full 300 times. No, no, this is a legit claim. 25,000 career points. Well, congrats, Russ. Now, let's talk about Melville Moore. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. I give you Super Train! Episode 455, Submission 1200, Melba. Melba aired on the CBS television network for one airing in January of 1986 before being pulled from the schedule, but returning for the remainder of the run from August 2nd, 1986 to September 13th of 1986 for a total of six episodes. So that's ten less episodes than the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show, Uncle Croc's Block, and a lot of Hanna Barbera shows. Schooled. What else am I forgetting? I don't even remember. Uh, we don't even remember. It's been so long at this point. When you do 454 episodes of these things, they all run together. Let's just say it ran 10 short of a crock block. Remember way back in school When Mama laid down the road To stick together like glue Cause we're sisters It's easy to tell as people go Well, we're continuing Black History Month, and we're here to talk about a legend of the Broadway stage, and we talked about her all the way back in episode 176, because she was one of the speakers in the Bicentennial Minute, and I'm talking about the one, the only, the legendary Melba Moore, Queen, yes, 
Chico, do you have any information to share with our audience about the great Melba Moore? As a matter of fact, I do. Um, she cut her chops on Broadway. She earned a 1971 Grammy nomination for Best New Artist with her debut album, I Got Love. And the following year, she scored with the variety television show that co-starred Clifton Davis. Wow. So they were going to be the African-American Sonny and Cher. Unfortunately, their relationship ended similarly. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So, you know, her credits, you know, stage, screen, television, she was in, oh my God. Oh my God. The greatest non-Disney movie I think I've ever seen. I don't remember any other animated movie making me cry. All Dogs Go to Heaven. She was in All Dogs Go to Heaven. She was in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Holy crap. She was in All Dogs Go to Heaven. If you want a good cry, listen to the soundtrack. But yeah, she is just a legend of the screen, the stage. She is a Grammy winner. She's lived the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. You can't jive her for that. No. But we talked about how she had a variety show with Clifton Davis, and that was like, eh. It was like, oh, there were some problems. and Yeah, that just ended. But she ended up getting second shot in television with her very own sitcom. It was called Melba. And if I could go to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia real quick, Melba was a show about the home and work life of Melba Patterson, a divorced mother who is the director of New York's Manhattan Visitor Center. Melba is raising her 90-year-old daughter, Tracy, with the help of her mother, Rose, and her white, quote-unquote, sister, Susan Slater. Melba and Susan have been close since childhood, since Rose was Susan's family's housekeeper when they were growing up. So, that's your show. I guess it's... What would you say, Chico, this show is basically? I could tell you. I mean, it seemed like there was really nothing like it on television at the time. At least nothing that I can remember. No. So... Chica, why don't you get into the cast here? Now, I mentioned Melba Moore here, but who plays the rest of the characters on this show? All right, so, playing Tracy Patterson, Melba's daughter, Jamila Perry. After this, she didn't have much of the way of work. The last credit I have is as a voice in Grand Theft Auto 4. Oh, that's terrific. Voice in Grand Theft Auto 4. Work. Playing Susan Slater, Gracie Harrison, who was in 61 episodes of The Doctors in 1980. Not the other show that's Doctors. That's a completely different Doctors. Yeah, we're talking about uh, one of your mother's stories. Wait a second. Hold on a second. Mike. She was in a 1983 episode of The Powers of Matthew Starr. I was just 
about to say that. Now, Mike just gave the Yankees thumbs down to that, which, yes, I agree. She was also in the Bigfoot installment of the Magical World of Disney from 1987, Greg. Ooh. But, yeah, this is pretty much the uh, extent of her career. I mean, she's done a whole lot of one-offs. She did three episodes of Designing Women, but that's pretty much it. Hey, this is not going to be the last time we talk about Designing Women in this episode. Playing Mama Rose... Another legend in her own right, Barbara Meek, a graduate of Wayne State University's Theater Repertoire and the Trinity Square Repertory Theater in Providence, Rhode Island. She played Ellen Canby in 41 episodes of Archie Bunker's Place and Connie Ma Duncan in 81 episodes of Big Brother Jake. Oh, yes, Big Brother Jake. Sadly, no longer with us. She died in 2015. And rounding out the cast as Jack, we have Lou Jacoby, best known for IQ in 1994, Irma La Duce in 1963, and can't believe we're referencing this on this podcast. Everything you always wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask in 1972. But... He was in a 1989 episode of L.A. Law. <sighs> what, Chico? Just play the clip. Yeah. Might as well. I really don't want to talk about it. Ah! Oh! Oh! oh, my God! I'm going to add one more credit just because I love this episode of this series. He was in the episode of Sanford and Son titled Steinberg and Son. Basically, Steinberg and Son is a TV show that airs and Fred Sanford says, hey, they're basically mocking us. They're literally just like us, except instead of being two African-American guys, a father and a son, it's two Jewish guys. He played the father on this episode, Mr. Steinberg, the elder Steinberg. You're not going to guess who played the younger Steinberg. No idea. Who is it? Surprise us. John Larroquette. Oh. And this would have been John Larroquette's second credit. First actual acting credit. Was this before Baba Black Sheep? It was his first acting credit, so yeah. And then we have Gil, played by Evan Morans, who was actually in six episodes, four years after this aired, of something called Glory Days, back when Fox was trying to establish itself on Wednesdays. Wait, are you sure it was CBS? Because CBS had a show called Glory Days. That was a basketball show that aired the following fall. This is from 1990, so... Okay, so there's another... There's two shows called Glory Days? Really? There's a lot of shows that share names, but not necessarily premises. Hunter. There was a show called Hunter. 
before there was a show called Hunter. That's the only one I could think of off the top of my head. Okay. Now, hold on a second. We did cover another game show in the past that was called Wheel of Fortune, prior to the Wheel of Fortune we know now. Oh, I just remembered. We covered three shows named Second Chance. Yes! How could we have forgotten? You do almost 500 of these, the brain tends to go. Okay, so now we're going to get into episode one. Now, I mentioned that it got pulled after one episode, and we're going to get into that after we're done talking about the episodes. Episode one is called Manhunt. Susan convinces Melba to go with her to a singles party to get a date for the mayor's ball, which Melba got an invitation to. Now, in this episode, the one, the only, Meshack Taylor. Hollywood! This would actually be almost, well, a little over a year away from that career-defining role. In Mannequin, yes. Because remember, it came out in February of 87. Yeah, so it'd be like a year and a month away. And also don't forget that his big role in Designing Women would come on CBS later in the fall. And also in this episode is the actor Frank Ashmore. He's been in a whole bunch of stuff. He was in three episodes of the Arrested Development 2018 reboot season on Netflix. He's done a whole bunch of video games. He was in Dead Space 3. He was in Mafia 3. He was on an episode of Rizzoli and Isles back in 2012. Oh, he was on a couple of episodes of the original V from 1983-1984. He was Victor Basta in Airplane. Oh! But then we'd have to wait all the way to August for the second episode. Yeah. So, let's get into episode two. So, it came back in August of 1986 after it got pulled for seven, eight months. And episode two is called Mothers and Other Strangers. Melba is jealous that her daughter Tracy is spending so much time with her ex-husband and his new girlfriend. Susan and Melba visit the travel agency where the girlfriend works to check her out. Playing Valerie Hughes, a lady by the name of Marianne Alda from Edge of Night, where she played Dee Dee Bannister. We talked about her in previous entry, The Royal Family. You know where else we've talked about her? I want to hear Greg's reaction because he totally forgot about this. Well, what is it? She played the stripper that was in the Boom Boom Room. Are we really going there today? Hold on a second, Mike. I'm just going to say it right now. You have a real problem with this scene. How Sherman Hemsley found love with this stripper. But your problem is she's a middle-aged stripper. Which I say, that's completely ageist, Mike. I'm sorry. I like my strippers to be younger than me. A little bit younger than me. Not 47, 48, 49. Well, some people have a cougar fetish, Mike. And I'm sure some people have big old floppy t- fetish, too. <laughs> Still, put some clothes on. 
sixth episode, please. Episode three, The Trying. Mama Rose rekindles a romance with a high school flame who also takes an interest in Melba. Episode four, Mother Knows Best. Susan tries her hand at motherhood with the bratty son of a man she is interested in. Plague said son, a lad by the name of Timmy, is Scott Curtis. He was in 67 episodes of Santa Barbara and two episodes of Growing Pains playing two different people. Oh. I wonder if he ran into Boner. Have I mentioned how much I love Boner's the bone on Growing Pains? Once or twice. I don't think never on this podcast. I know I've mentioned plenty of times since episode 300 I love Wings, but I've never mentioned how much I love Boner. So I'm finally glad I got that out of my system. Well, another reason to love Boner is he's Walter Koenig's kid. That's true. He's Chekhov's kid. R.I.P. Andrew. Episode 5. My Shadow and Me. Melba's job demands interfere with her ability to appear with her daughter in the third grade talent show. I hate when that happens. Gotta be in two different places at the same time. It's sitcom gold, but practically impossible. There is a name in this episode. No character given. James Karen is in this episode. Legendary actor. Ton of credits. And actually did an episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast before he passed away in 2018. Okay. I'll take a listen to that. And the final episode is episode six. The girls are back in town. Melba and Susan remember an old high school friend's pledge to meet at their favorite ice cream parlor. The date is a few days away. They worry about impressing their old friends. One of their friends is a known name, playing a character by the name of Babs Belita Moreno, known primarily as Betty in George Lopez, the 2002-2007 show, but also Lydia Markham on Perfect Strangers. Fun fact, before she played Lydia Markham on Perfect Strangers, she had a one-off role as Mr. Twinkasetti's wife in season one. That's Ernie Sabella's character, correct? Correct. We also talked about her on an episode of Going Places. Oh, yes, Going Places. Mike, isn't that great she was on an episode of Going Places? Second time this episode. Look, you're entitled to your wrong opinion, Mike. I agree with you on the powers of Matthew Store, but not on Going Places. I'm not going to stand for it, damn it. Fair enough, but will you stand for this? One more name, not big as an actor. Not even a character name in this episode. Craig Marks. Where you know him from is behind the scenes, doing a lot of music for TV shows. Iron Chef America, Intervention, Super Nanny. Many, many shows over the last 
basically 25 years. So that's the show. And I'm going to have to get an elephant out of the room here when we talk about what happened to this show. But before we do that, I'm going to play some area-appropriate messages from 1986. And then we're going to come right back after this. Burning buildings and busy streets are dangerous places to be. Garrett Morgan made them a lot less dangerous. In 1912, he invented a helmet that let firemen breathe even in dense smoke, the world's first gas mask. It would save thousands of lives during World War I. In 1923, after seeing a traffic accident, Morgan invented the electric traffic light. Today, in hundreds of cities, thousands of firemen and millions of pedestrians have Garrett Morgan to thank for safe passage across dangerous ground. I'm Garrett Morris with an American portrait. When seconds count, sometimes the most important thing K. O'Brien, coming soon to CBS. Call me Kale. Well, I kind of get a kick out of having my kid sister live with me. I mean, of course, it has its disadvantage. Curfew. Yeah, but it's, it's energizing having someone live with you who has big dreams. Rock star. What happened to Senator? That was last week. Dreams, that's what it's all about. <laughs> Can I get my nose pierced? Dream on, kid. CBS Sports Break, sponsored by Emory Worldwide. Good evening. In the NFL playoffs today, Eric Dickerson of Los Angeles took the first play of the second half, 65 yards, for a touchdown, en route to an NFL playoff record of 248 yards and two touchdowns as the Rams shut out Dallas 20 to nothing. Earlier, Miami's Ron Davenport scored a pair of second-half touchdowns as the Dolphins overcame an 18-point Cleveland lead. Davenport's second score, with less than two minutes left, made Coach Don Shula's 56th birthday a happy one indeed. I'll have more after this. Henry's on the case, so you don't have to worry. From the biggest to the smallest, it's as good as they're just called Hi, Emery. It's as good as they're. In the NFL playoffs tomorrow, New England visits the Raiders while the Giants and Bears hold their first postseason meeting in 23 years. For CBS Sports Break, I'm John Tesh. This is CBS. Welcome back. Now, Mike, are you very happy that I put in the CBS Sports Break with John Tesh? Well, I think we need to clarify from our little 20 questions game last week. Greg did say, is this person currently on CBS? And I said, no. And then afterwards, he said, well, John Tesh did the CBS Sports updates. The key word is, is he on at that time, 1988? 1987, was he on CBS? The answer is no. I think Greg is actually referring to the Browns-Dolphins highlights. Yeah. I know. I know. If it made you feel any better, Mike, at least the Dolphins would lose next week. Well, it's time to get the elephant out of the room. What happened? Well, I mentioned that this show had one error in January of 1986. 
but I never said what day it aired in January of 1986. It aired on January 28th, 1986. And I'm sure, I mean, I gotta mention it. Earlier that day, at 11.39 a.m. in Cape Canaveral, Florida, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after liftoff. And it was a very sad day. Mike, do you, I mean, you're the oldest out of all of us. I mean, you were 10 at the time. Do you have, like, any memories of that day? Vividly. About, oh gosh, maybe about an hour, maybe even less than an hour before the explosion happened, we actually had like a 5.5 earthquake. And I remember like everybody was holding under their desks and their, their chairs were shaking. And I thought that would be the big thing that would you remember that day. Literally the biggest earthquake I've ever felt in my life in this area. But then, and they didn't tell us about this immediately. When we were leaving for the day, so this is probably about 2.30, 3 o'clock-ish, I saw a whole bunch of teachers gathered in the library, and they were watching one of the old media carts with the giant TVs on it. And I didn't totally get what was going on. They weren't talking. They weren't communicating with us. You couldn't see if they were happy, sad. They were just sort of glued to the TV screen. It was once I got home that night that I found out what happened. And I think the powers that be just decided, you know what? Don't tell the kids. They might not understand it, especially since Kristen McAuliffe was on board and she was a teacher. So, yeah, I found out, I don't want to say the hard way, but I probably found out I'm guessing from either like the six o'clock news or six thirty news. I don't even think my parents mentioned it, but yeah, I remember that day very, very clearly. Now I didn't even know about the earthquake port. Well, that was only in Ohio, but like I said, it was like a five point five earthquake. Again, enough to shake the desks in the classroom and move the chairs. Yeah, uh, and that happened. Like I said, maybe about an hour or even less than uh, an hour before the uh, the Challenger situation. Now, I should mention, the reason Melba came to my attention, I gotta say, this might have been maybe the early days of the podcast. I found out about this through the audiobook of Mo Rocca's Mobituaries about Melba and how it had the misfortune of airing the day of the Challenger. Now, I should also mention, also related to mobituaries. Now, Mike, I don't know if you've ever heard this episode, but have you ever heard the episode about the second-place finishers? It doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Well, in that episode, there's people that came in, like, the second person or second thing to actually do something, like a footnote to, like, an historical achievement in that episode. And they cover three subjects in that episode. Now, the first... And this is kind of fitting because we're at the 60th anniversary of this. The Dave Clark Five, who were the second British band to appear on the Ed Sullivan show after the Beatles in 1964. The second one is, and you're going to love this, Mike, 
Larry Doby. Because Larry Doby, of course, was the second African-American to break the color barrier of Major League Baseball and the first in the American League to do so. And it's actually a very good segment. But the third one is actually about Judy Resnick, who was on the Challenger, because she was the second American woman in space after Sally Ride. But one thing I didn't realize, listen, she was actually from Akron. I did not realize that. Well, so is Sally Ride. They're both from Akron. Yeah. So that was a good one. If you listen to that episode of Mobituaries, highly recommend it. It's very good. But was the challenger really to blame for why this show failed in the ratings? And I'm going to say no. Because if you go to TVTango.com for January 28th, 1986. Now I have the lineup for this day. Opposite Melba at 8 o'clock, we have on ABC, Who's the Boss? And then on NBC, we have the AT. So, I'm sorry, but there's no way you're going to beat at 8 o'clock Tony Danza or Mr. T. Well, also, obviously, the situation of the day probably had people thinking uh, other things than watching Melba. And supposedly, from what I've read, that night, January 28th of 1986, at least at that time, was the lowest rated night in CBS's television history. Lowest ever. And you got to remember, CBS TV goes back to the late 40s. So you're talking about basically close to 40 years of television at that time. But I also want to mention that January 28th, 1986. Now, if you're on TV Tango, there's this weird spot here where NBC has nothing from 9 to 10, and ABC and CBS have nothing from 10 to 11. Now, there's a reason for this inconsistency, because the State of the Union for President Reagan was going to air that night on January 28th of 1986. And then when the challenger happened, the Reagan administration and Congress said, this is really not the appropriate night to do this. So they moved it another week to the first week of February. So I'm guessing NBC just aired like news coverage of what happened that day at 9 to 10. And then ABC and CBS moved whatever their programming was for 10 o'clock because they expected the State of the Union to be there to 9 o'clock. Now, just to note, ABC at 9 o'clock aired a repeat of Moonlighting, and then at 9 o'clock on CBS, they aired a new episode of Trapper John M.D. And this would have been the final season of Trapper John M.D., right? I believe so, yes. And just so I mentioned, at 8.30 on ABC, we had, and I mentioned it earlier, Growing Pains. But on CBS at 8.30, well... I won't say what it is, but let's just say we're going to talk about it next week. Okay, so when Melba returned in August of 1986 on the 2nd, it was on Saturday night. 
you're burning your remaining five episodes on Saturday in the summer. It's like, let's just get it, burn it, and be done with it. But what it aired up against at 8 o'clock, you had on ABC Different Strokes. Yes, this is the final season of Different Strokes, the season it was on ABC. And then on NBC, and this is just killer, regardless if it's summer reruns or not, the facts of life. And this would have been the first season with George Clooney? 85-86? Yeah, because didn't he come around 85-86 when Edna Garrett opened that store? Uh, let me just double check here. Uh, first season as a regular. 85-86? Yeah. And I know she had the store by 85, so this was definitely the whatever type of shop it was that uh, Edna Garrett ran. Oh, and Mackenzie Aston was in the cast by then, too. As Edna's Andy. Edibles? Edna's Edibles, yes. Which nowadays will be a pot shop. <laughs> you know it would be. Okay, let me get the ratings. So, oh my god. Melba actually barely did worse than Different Strokes. Melba got a 5-7 on August 2nd. Different Strokes did a 5-9. And this was a repeat of Different Strokes. Yeah, because they would have already aired their final episode earlier. And The Facts of Life did a 9-5. Now, the following week, Melba actually beat Different Strokes on August 9th. It did a 5-4. Different Strokes did a 5 and the Facts of Life did a 10-3. And then the following week, Melba did a 5-2. Opposite Facts of Life, which did an 8.6. But it actually didn't win the time slot that week. Because ABC aired a repeat of the Ewok Adventure, which did a 9-3. So let me just point out, in 1986, Melba Moore... Not as big of a ratings draw as the Ewoks. But then the next two weeks, Melba actually got preempted. So Melba, on August 23rd, was replaced by a pilot of something called Adam's Apple? According to Google's generative AI, a 1986 pilot directed by James Brawley and starring Jim Borelli and John Cunningham. It is a crime drama produced by Frank Abadamarco. That aired on CBS on August 23rd, but was not picked up by the network. And then following that pilot was NFL preseason football. So I'm wondering what preseason football would they have been airing in August of 86? I'm guessing this was a national game, possibly. I mean, I don't have the preseason schedule of 86, and I doubt. That would be like listed on football reference. It definitely wouldn't be a Hall of Fame game. I don't think that came till much later. And then it got preempted the following week for another pilot called Powers Play at 8 o'clock on August 30th. Now, do you have information about that, Chico? 
I do not. Oh. Maybe it's something about hockey. We can only hope. Oh, hold on. I got it right here. Yeah. It has a page on IMDb, and it features, among its cast, David Birdie, Tal Penglis, Kurtwood Smith, and Sheree J. Wilson. Oh, that's terrific. And it was the final screen performance of Noah Beery Jr. Talk about going out on the high note. But again, like the previous week, following the pilot was an NFL preseason game. Now, Melba would come back on September 6th, and it would draw a 6-6 opposite the facts of life, which did a 14-4. But on ABC, you had a college football game airing on that day. So let me just just see if I can find what college football game would have been airing on Saturday night. Okay, I'm going to guess it's Florida State against Nebraska because I typed in ABC September 6th, 1986 college football, and I see that as the first result because I'm seeing Tim Brand's face right there on the thumbnail. So that college football game did an 8-3 in the rating. But then on September 13th, the final airing, Melba drew a 7 opposite the Facts of Life's 14-3. But on ABC, guys, Melba went up against the repeat of Part 5 of the Winds of War. Yeah, you're not beating that. The Winds of War drew an 8-5. You know what? I'm very disappointed that NBC didn't try to counter with the winds of Whoopi. Maybe they did on an earlier night, because this was part five. But ooh, the winner of the night was the Miss America pageant, which drew a 23 rating on NBC. But oh, look at this. The pilot of Easy Street with Lonnie Anderson drew a 27-3 that night. And that was one and done. If you drew a 27-3 in 2024, you're guaranteed like 15 seasons. I want to actually see how many episodes Easy Street ended up pulling. Easy Street ended up pulling a full season. Oh, but that was pretty much it. Well, at least it ran for longer than a crock block. And it was created by Hugh Wilson, so you bet your ass we're going to be covering it in the future. Yeah, because we got to complete the Hugh Wilson trilogy. We did Famous Teddy Z or, on our network, the Teddy Famous Z. We just did Frank's Place, and now we got to cover Easy Street. we got to wrap up this whole Hugh Wilson trilogy that we didn't even know had a trilogy. So before we sign off, I just want to point out, I found a review of Melba from the Los Angeles Times dated from January 28th, 1986 from Lee Margulies and it looks like the critics did not take too kindly to this show so let me read this review right here 
Melba Moore looks jittery in the premiere of her new comedy series, Melba, which takes the air at 8 tonight on channels 2 and 8. It's easy to guess why she'd read the script. She was probably worried about vultures swooping in to pick at its lifeless remains before the cast was even done performing. Moore, the singer and Tony Award winner for Pearly, plays Melba Patterson, who lives with her mother, played by Barbara Meek, and nine-year-old daughter, played by Jameel Perry, and runs the Visitor Center in New York City. She also is recently divorced and therefore shy about returning to the dating circuit. The last time I went out on a date, only women wore earrings, she protests. That's why in tonight's show she's having trouble lining up an escort for dinner at the mayor's mansion. One of the men in her office says he has the same problem when he wants to go out. What about your wife, Melba asks. That's the problem. And to carry the humor beyond merely dumb to obnoxious, there is Melba's quote-unquote sister, played by Gracie Harrison, who, in a twist on different strokes, is white, having been raised in her housekeeper's family after her mother died. As if their color wasn't contrast enough, she's a pushy blonde who is desperate to land a man because, quote-unquote, my biological clock is clanging like Big Ben. Clunking is more like it. Also, I should note in the review in the LA Times, there's a review of a CBS school break special called Babies Having Babies, directed by Morton Sheen in his directing debut that was to air at 3 p.m. that day. Uh, let's just safe to say, because of what happened that day, this probably didn't air. But yeah, that's the show, and as I mentioned, everyone assumes that the Challenger was the cause of this show's demise. But as I said, when you look at the ratings and what it went up against, Challenger or no Challenger, even if it had run the full six weeks in 86, it's like, are you really going to beat who's the boss in the A-team? No. So, unfortunately, in 1986, Melba just became a thing on TV. But guys, would you believe I have the eBay prices right for this episode? I don't believe it, but you wouldn't lie to us. No, I wouldn't. I want to see this. Let's play the music. All right, guys. You are bidding on a poster. And the title of this is for Melba Moore, My Sensitive, Passionate Man, Rare Original Promo Poster, Ad Frame. Now, this is a song Melba Moore performed for a TV movie on NBC called My Sensitive, Passionate Man, starring Angie Dickinson and David Jansen. I'm going to put the poster in the chat right now. I'm going to read it from the poster right here. Hear Melba Moore sing, My Sensitive, Passionate Man, her new single, the theme from the NBC TV production, A Sensitive, Passionate Man. Monday evening, June 6th at 9 p.m. 
And you see Angie Dickinson and David Jansen right there at the bottom. Now, guys, I should note, you can get this poster for 6% off right now the rigor of price. But you're not going to be bidding on the rigor of price. You're going to be bidding on the price that's being offered to you right now. So, Mike, I'm going to start the bidding with you. How much do you think this poster advertising Melville Moore's new single from this TV movie on NBC with David Jansen and Angie Dickinson, how much do you think this is going to go for? What year is the poster from, if you know? 1977. Okay. $46.80. $46.80. Chica, what's your bid? I'm just going to throw out a random number. $23.99. is not a random number. But okay. The price of this poster to advertise hearing Melbourne Moore's lovely voice. $61.10. Why? Mike is the winner. Now, you see, I was thinking originally $100 minus 6% would be $94. And that's why I dropped it down to, well, $46.99 would be 6% less than $50, roughly. So, trying to figure out what that math would be in my head. $65 normally? Yeah, I guess so. Let me see what the original price was. Yeah, $65. What? Okay. Yeah, that's the listing price it went for. Oh, it's located in Rockledge, Florida. If you could get it between March 5th and March 8th. Says this item has an extended handling time and delivery estimate greater than 13 business days. Oh, well, that's terrific to know. Well, guys, before we sign off this episode, I'm going to tell you a little story time break. Now, guys, I think I've mentioned on this podcast many times that during the summer, I worked for a collegiate summer baseball league out here in the Hamptons. And one time, I want to say about a year and a half ago. This was July 30th, 2022. I remember this day real well. It was during the league championship series. I was working a game in West Hampton. And I remember seeing a sign in West Hampton Beach advertising that later that night, Melba Moore was going to be singing. I don't know where it was, but I remember this sign specifically advertising Melba Moore was going to be singing on this day. And I didn't go to it. I had to go to a game the next day at like 4 o'clock. I had to drive all the way from my house here in Eastern Long Island to Sag Harbor. And that's like an hour drive. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to spend the rest of my night. As great as Melbourne Moore is, I'm sorry. I can't sacrifice my sleep time. Especially when I know I got to drive an hour out to go to my last baseball game of the season. If it had been reversed and the series was over, maybe I would have gone to Melbourne more. But unfortunately, it was not to be. So, guys, I could have had the chance to hear Melbourne Moore sing live. And I missed it. Sorry. Yeah. You missed the queen, man. What else are you going to do? Hey, guys. I'm going to do a non-traditional close to the episode. This isn't going to be funny. This is going to be something serious. And I want you guys to put a little thought into this. Because this is 100% true. Did you know that Big Bird 
was supposed to be on the challenger. Oh yeah. I knew this. I knew this. Okay. I first heard about this maybe about a month or two ago. And it really got me thinking about how television might've totally changed because how do you explain big bird dying to kids and what happens to Sesame street? There's just so many questions about how television and children's television changes. And I think it's just a very compelling question about, you know, what if, so again, no humor. I just thought that was a, uh, Interesting little side note that it wasn't supposed to be Krista McAuliffe who went in the space shuttle Challenger. It was supposed to be Big Bird. Well, actually, it was like, because there's like a Netflix documentary about the Challenger that aired a couple of years ago. I think NASA, like, this was like 83, 84 with the idea, and like, NASA dismissed it immediately. It's like, yeah, you couldn't even get the suit to fit anyway. So it's like, nobody thought anything about that. So it was like, yeah, whatever. And I don't even think it would have worked anyway, logistically, so. Especially in that shuttle. Well, and also, how is Big Bird going to wear space helmet? Yeah. There's a lot of logistical issues, but it's just a very interesting what if, I think. Now, Mike, you have something about Melba, the show, before we sign off. Now, this is not necessarily a haiku, but you wrote this yourself, correct? Well, I didn't even write it. I just came up with it. But yeah, I created it, if that's what you're insinuating. In January 1986, CBS thought Melba was a peach. But unfortunately, by summer of 1986, Melba was toast. That was beautiful, Mike. I'm going to bring myself to tears in a second. Saturday. about her ex-husband's new lady. He's a single man now. He can take whoever he pleases. Even trash. And ends up at the mystery woman's door. Go on. She's Melba. Episode 456. Submission number 691. Baby, I'm back. He's back, baby. Baby, I'm back aired on the CBS television network from January 30th to April 24th of 1978 for the run-of-the-mill 13 episodes. Free lesson your crock block. Do we ever cover anything from January of 78, Greg? We've covered a lot of things in 79. I'm not sure about 78. We covered Superdome. That was in January of 78. And... The 1978 Science Fiction Film Awards were on January 20th. I'm a rock it man. And now, here's Damon Wilson with a brief synopsis of the show. I used to live on this street. Seven years ago, I supported a wife, two kids, and three bookies. Then one day, my luck ran out, and like any right-thinking horse player, I ran with it. That's my wife, Olivia. She's still as pretty as the day I took off. Never found a woman that could equal her. And God knows I tried. That's Angie and Jordan, my two kids. I figure I can win them back because seven years ago, they were too young to know what a heel I was. 
That's my mother-in-law, Lizelle. Lizelle is French for killer. The day she moved in with us, the rats moved next door. I'll say one thing for that woman, she never gives up. Even though I showed up after seven years and moved right upstairs, she still thinks she can get rid of me. But don't count on it, because baby, I am back. So as you heard during the theme, this is the story of the return of a ne'er-do-well after seven years. There's actually a bigger story to that, but before we tell that story, we have to tell another story. Leela Garrett, a screenwriter and radio host whose credits include My Favorite Martian, Bewitched, and All in the Family, created this show with Mort Lackman. And according to Scott Llewellyn in his book, Funny You Should Ask, Oral Histories of Classic Sitcom Storytellers, Garrett created this show to address the social issue of the time of black males not being able to get jobs to provide for their families, whether you chalk that up to ability or the system, you know, do your own research, form your own opinion. At the time, a majority of black males were not able to get jobs to provide for their families. Many, because of this, had abandoned their families, and in this case, the lead character did abandon his family, but once he found work, got his act together, he came back, hence the name of the show. The introduction summarized the plot line of the show beautifully, but to expand upon it, Demond Wilson plays Ray Ellis, providing for both his family and a really bad gambling addiction. But one day, he went over his head and did what anyone in that position would do, leave Washington, D.C., and took off to California for seven years. Taking that time to really find himself. Well, one day, he heard that his wife, Olivia, and her mother, Luzelle, were about to have him declared legally dead so she could marry her boss, one Colonel Wallace Dickey, a PR specialist for the Pentagon. Wait, what was his name again? Colonel Wallace Dickey. (laughs) Colonel Dickey. Yeah, as we all know, Greg is like a 14-year-old. Is he in relation to Ari Dickey? Robert Allen Dickey. R.A. Dickey. Upon hearing of his death, Ray Ellis returns to D.C. to stop the wedding, turn his life around, and win back the love of his family. But is such a thing even possible for an alive man who's supposedly dead? We'll find out. But first, Let's reintroduce our players. We already talked about Ray Ellis, played by Demond Wilson, who is just coming off the final season of Sanford and Son, as this show is debuting as a pilot in October of 1977, believe it or not. Playing his wife, Olivia Ellis, is Denise Nicholas, who would be four years removed from playing a regular role on the seminal coming-of-age early 70s classic Room 222. 
And she was on 69 episodes of In the Heat of the Night. Nice. Were you saying nice because of the number of episodes or because it was In the Heat of the Night? Yes. Acceptable. Hold on. Let me sing it. In the heat of the night. Maybe I just shouldn't have mentioned that. Oh, well. Playing elder son Jordan is Tony Holmes, whose greatest role was as teenage mugger in Crocodile Dundee. Was he on the receiving end of, you call that a knife? This is a knife? Maybe. It's been a while since I've seen Crocodile Dundee. Well, but the thing is, he pulls that big knife, and I thought it was in retaliation or in response to something going on, like a mugging. Playing nine-year-old Angie Ellis, the legendary Kim Fields. Oh, tootie. Facts of life, living single, the Upshaws, producer, director, writer, actress, do we need to go further? And then we have, oh, speaking of legendary actresses, playing Luzelle Carter, the mother-in-law and the bane of Raymond's existence, Helen Martin, who would be a few years removed from another sitcom set in a DC brownstone 227. Fantastic. You said, wait, 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 wait. You said a couple years removed? No, I said a few years. Like seven or eight. That's Okay, I just think that's more than a few. Okay. On Baby I'm Back, did she hang around a window all day? Yes. (laughs) Oh, so it's typecasting. She's that old black woman who sits around the window all day on that show. I hope you're proud of yourself, Chico, on this month. I didn't bring that up. You did, but yeah, that is accurate. But we You do- said yes. Yeah, wait, wait. No, you said yes. So yeah, I may have brought it up, but you confirmed it. There you go. But we do get to see her in action. And let me tell you, in the first episode where she's throwing a sponge at Damon Wilson's head, she's got an arm on her, just saying. Playing a recurring role as Colonel Wallace Dickey. Colonel Wallace Dickey, I'm sorry. No, I'm 14. Ed Hall. And just for clarification, we're not talking about the Tonight Show announcer with uh, Mr. Black. Wait, we're not talking about one of the stars of the hit late night segment, Father Biff? We're talking about Dr. Bricker from Medical Center. Father Piff. Just remember what Father Piff says. I'm going to kick your butt. But remember, he's tough but tender. Now I've got the Father Piff music in my head, you jerks. Father? Someone make the theme escape from my head. So those are the major players on Baby I'm Back. Here are their escapades, starting with the original pilot that aired in October 22nd, 1977. 
Ray briefs the viewing audience in a voiceover about how Olivia and Wallace tried to get married and had him declare legally dead. He, of course, foiled the attempt, but Olivia and Wallace attempt again to get married, causing Ray to try and get himself declared legally alive so she will not be able to marry another person. Because remember, if she marries somebody while she's still married to somebody, that's bigamy. And this is by Helen Martin. Ain't nothing big of you. Can you do that from a window so it's more authentic? Ain't nothing big of you. You just crossed your arms. Oh my god. <laughs> Helen Martin is a freaking legend. I so wish this was a video podcast that you could have seen him just holding his in his chest like and lining up perfectly with my Zoom window, by I should say. You look like Shaq in the Kazam movie poster with that. <laughs> A Shazam is... reference. Oh, my gosh. No, not Shazam. You're thinking of the movie with Sinbad that doesn't exist. <laughs> no, no. I'm thinking Shazam, which is going to be Kazam on our network. It's after it's always showtime at the Apollo. But it's funny I mentioned Shaq is. Just got his number retired by the Magic this week. First number retired by the Magic. Olivia surprises him by moving up the time of the wedding so that Ray will not have enough time to spoil the ceremony. Supposedly, this episode tested so well and rated so well that CBS bought a whole season, put it on Monday nights, and moved production from the Studio Center in Radford to... Television City in Hollywood! Hey, we do have a name of sorts in the pilot. Playing an old man in the pilot is a gentleman by the name of Patrick Cranshaw. If you look at his picture, you might remember him like I do. From old school, he played blue. He had this big mustache. You can't not recognize him after you see that. You're my boy, Blue. So after they order the show to series, they reshoot the pilot. I don't know why they reshot the pilot. Probably because it was a little too stereotypical. Because I did watch the pilot and the actual first episode. The actual first episode that aired in January is a lot tamer by comparison. But it basically has the same plot. Olivia and Luzel have Raymond Ellis legally declared dead after no contact or calls for the last seven years. After running into an old friend who updates him in Los Angeles, Ray flies back to reconcile with Olivia and the children. Believe it or not, we do have a name on this first episode, this redone pilot. Playing the stewardess. On this plane where he came back, uh, I'm guessing, Eliza Roberts. You don't recognize her from a specific TV show. I mentioned her because she is married to Eric Roberts, which means she is the sister-in-law of Julia Roberts. And the mother of Emma. Are we forgetting about Emma? I care more about Julia. Now, hold on a second, Chica. Emma Roberts is in Madam Webb. 
Now, I know this movie is getting raked over the coils, but we know there's only one reason to go see it. Two reasons. Well, two, but for me, it's just one. I might say that the one reason gives me euphoria. <laughs> Did you get that, Mike? No, and I don't want to. Okay, tell me. Sydney Sweeney, silly. Shoulder shrug here. I don't know what you're talking about. Google her when we're done. Like, Sweeney. like the okay. city. I can't believe you don't even know who Sydney Sweeney is. Okay, she's entirely too young for me. Gosh, I've got underwear know, older than I her. I know. Euphoria, White Lotus, Handmaid's. Okay, I've never seen Handmaid's Tale. But the kids love you. Well, it's kind of they disturbing love the kids love Euphoria, but the kids do love White Lotus. That's all they ever talk about is the White Lotus. Yeah, they all you, love did, 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 Yo, yo, yo. Did you hear that one member of Blackpink was going to be on the next season of White Lotus? Oh, yeah, because he got pulled because he was like a Putin guy, right? No, a member of Blackpink is going to be on the next season of White Lotus. Oh, yeah, but they did pull a guy because he had, like, sympathetic ties to Putin. Rest in peace, Alexi. Hey, Greg, did you say there are two reasons you're going to watch that? No, Chico said two reasons. Chico, you perv! Now I, I know what you're talking, talking about. talking about Dakota Johnson, too, okay? Well, now you're talking about four reasons, you pervert. No, you're talking about four reasons. I don't even know who the hell we're talking about now. Look, I have much respect for Don Johnson. I will not say anything bad about Dakota Johnson. I'm sure she's a lovely lady. Episode two. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Hold on. Hold on. There's another guy here. I totally forgot about this other guy here. Playing attorney Adam Johnson, the man who officially presents the documents to legally declare our hero dead bill cobbs we talked about him and we talked about him recently he was on all 20 episodes of the slap maxwell story i can't believe it episode two pay or die ray is all of a sudden tracked down by two men who claim they are loan shark collectors for someone who lent Ray $200 seven years ago. Ray must pay back the $200 plus the interest per week over the seven years that has accumulated. Now, I'm not much into geometry, but that brings the amount to $7,280. What, what is the hell? Interest? Wait, wait. Wait a second, what the hell interest rate is that? I just taught loans to my students this week in financial literacy, and we got into loan sharking, but not this bad. Uh, yeah, it was 10 bucks a week. Hold on, I really need to do the math here to see what uh, type yeah, of percentage rate. I think they rate. messed that up somewhere, because if I'm not mistaken, interest isn't like a flat fee interest is like a percentage well i mean when you're talking about like 
APR, stuff like that. Yeah. But I still want to find out what type of loan this was. It was a loan from a Bucky. And he said it was $10 a week. Okay. $10 a week over the seven years that he's been gone. So 52 times 7 times 10 plus the 200. Yeah, that's $7,280. Oh, I'm sorry. It was $20. It was 10%. The interest on this loan was 10%. So that was $20. But yeah, that's supposed to be compounding. So you're not taking 10% of 200. You're supposed to be taking 10% of 200 plus the 10% earlier. So the next week would be interest on $220 and then $242. It's Hollywood. They're probably looking for an easy write. Okay, Chico, doing a little playing around with some loan calculators. I think I've nailed the interest rate to about 525%. Because you said $200 and you said it took seven years. Now, see, this might be month. Oh, this is monthly interest, I think. But still, it's ridiculous how high it is. But in any event, Ray is threatened and is afraid for his life. He goes to Olivia for help, but she accuses him of lying. Here's the catch. The loan sharks are actually actors hired by Luzelle to scare Ray into leaving town. So wait, I got all concerned about the percentage rate for no reason because it was all made up? What can I say? Luzel is French for killer. I think Luzel is French for biatch. Ellen Martin is a legend. Playing the two load sharks, Shake and Rosie. Shake is played by Wendell Wright who is in episodes of ER, Becker, Freaky Links, The West Wing, Party of Five, and Power Rangers Wild Force. Playing Rosie is Al White, who played, and now I'm quoting his character, Second Jive Dude from the original Airplane. Oh, so Barbara Billingsley is tight with him. He had a more solid role as Dr. Jackson in Switched at Birth from 2014 to 2017. Episode 3, Farewell to Boyish Charm. It is Ray and Olivia's 15th wedding anniversary. Ray has romantic plans for the evening, but Olivia would rather spend a nice, quiet evening with her fiancé, Colonel Wallace Dickey. Dickey. Unlucky with his plans, Ray goes to the local bar and runs into Racine Parks, a woman he and Olivia went to high school with. Since Ray could not have Olivia, he decides to take Racine to his place for a rendezvous, but not without stopping by Olivia's first to see Olivia and then up to his place, causing Olivia to be jealous. Ray and Racine's fun comes to an end when Ray gets a phone call from someone that knows what he and Racine have been up to. That would be a man who is 
trying to woo Racine named Shaq. But not that Shaq. Racine is played by the lovely Margaret Avery, who made her career as Suge in the original Color Purple. But the kids nowadays would probably remember her as Helen Patterson in 34 episodes of Being Mary Jane. And Shaq, not that Shaq, but the other Shaq, is played by John Hancock, who played Deputy Commissioner Hank Bishop in Future Entry Pacific Station. I was really hoping you were going to say he played the guy who put the big signature at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence. Ha <laughs> ha, you wish. Oh, and you guys talked about him a couple weeks ago, actually. He played Richard Armand, the judge, in three episodes of Cop Rock. Oh, that's terrific. I hope he was the judge during the scene where the jury say, he's guilty. Oh, yeah. He's guilty. Episode four, the loneliest night of the week. With Luzelle and the kids leaving for the weekend, Olivia plans a romantic dinner for her and Wallace, who calls to tell Olivia that he's unable to make it due to army maneuvers. But it's Ray who takes the call and manages to use Wallace's absence to his advantage to spend a romantic evening with Olivia. Meanwhile, Luzelle and the kids get stranded on the road after the car breaks down. I have an alternate capsule, and it's a real simple one. It says that Ray fixes a leaky faucet for Olivia in an effort to tap her emotions. That happens in this episode, too. Patrick Cranshaw, who we mentioned earlier, he returns in this episode as an old man. Episode 5, Beat by a Drum. After his mother refuses to give Jordan $300 for drums, Ray offers to give him the cash, also hoping this will bring him closer to his son, who, by the way, still thinks he's a deadbeat. Olivia is furious and tells Ray off, then makes Jordan return the drums and give Ray's money back. Jordan then accuses his father of giving him the money to get closer to his mother. I mean, come on, that's just the entire premise of the series right there. Episode 6, The Gospel According to Angie. Angie puts on a church play about the story of Ruth from the Bible with a little twist. Ruth is about to marry another man who is bald at the top of his head, not unlike Colonel Wallace Dickey, until the prodigal son, played by Jordan, returns after seven years and claims that Ruth is still his wife and remarries her. Ruth's mother responds by dropping dead. Time out. Susan, what do you have to say about this? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, God, it's been too long. You said it's been too long since you heard Susan? Yeah. She was here last week. Thank you. At least once, maybe twice. Oh, sorry. Uh, there's my goldfish memory again, guys. Sorry. Well, that explains it. It was told that Ruth remarried her first husband for the sake of the children, and of course it is revealed by Angie in front of the whole congregation that Ray helped her write the church play. 
Olivia angrily decides to leave on a trip with Wallace, despite Ray's objections as a result. And Nick Latour, who is in the first episode trying to marry these two people, returns as the minister. I will tell you, he was the counterman, the guy who's selling Turbo Man in Jingle All the Way. Episode 7, The Confessions of Colonel Wallace Dickey. Olivia is all dressed up to go to a banquet at the Pentagon with Wallace, but Wallace and Ray go for drinks at the local hangout, and Wallace ends up getting drunk and shares moments of his past life with Ray. Episode 8, A Day at the Races. Ray takes the children to the racetrack, where precocious young Jordan develops a formula for picking winning horses. Horses. Back, Jordan ends up winning 200. Ray convinces Olivia to let him bet the money on a long shot that Jordan predicts to win for 18,000. Olivia soon changes her tunes when she realizes that the horse is winning the race on television. Now, I have a question Is one of the horses secretariat? No, one of the horses is not secretariat. Because I want to point out, everybody. I don't know if I've ever pointed this out on this podcast, but Mike Francesa met Secretariat. Did you know this, Mike, that Mike Francesa met Secretariat? They see, I thought you were going to make a Seattle Slough reference because wasn't 78 the year that Seattle Slough won the Triple Crown? Either 77 or 78. Yeah, 77. But you hit me with Secretariat reference. Okay. Never heard that story, by the way. Do you think Mike Francesa met Seattle Slough, too? Wouldn't shock me. Would have been, what, four years later? Three years later. Meanwhile, Luzel gets <laughs> fallen down drunk while attempting to cook a French dinner for Angie and Jordan after a day with that low-life father. Playing jiggers in this episode... Somebody we talked about before and somebody that we will talk about again soon enough, Bert Rosario. He was an AKA Pablo. I knew the name sounded familiar. Episode 9 Survival of the Fittest. Ray and Luzel think they're following Wallace, Olivia, and the kids to a cabin in the mountains, not realizing they've returned home due to a snowstorm. And the two end up stuck in the storm. As Ray is driving his friend's motorhome on Interstate 95, which Greg and I know well, someone comes out of hiding in a wooden chest inside of the motorhome. Much to Ray's surprise, it's Luzel. Olivia and the rest of the clan return due to bad weather, while Ray and Luzel have to spend the evening together stuck on the highway due to a bad snowstorm. Classic case of trapped in a small space. Episode 10. Like father, unlike son. Due to Luzel's insomnia, Angie is sent to room with Jordan, who protests against his mother's wishes by going upstairs to room with Ray, who tries to make him go back to his mother so Ray can have peace and watch a game on TV. Eventually, everyone meets in Ray's apartment and eventually comes to an agreement as to who will sleep where, which brings an unexpected result for Ray. Episode 
11. Olivia's job offer. Olivia runs into her friend Anita at the Pentagon, who tells her about how great Guam is. By the way, Guam is incredibly wonderful. And how it was life-changing for her. With some mistaken encouragement from her mother, Olivia does some re-examining of her life and decides not to choose between Ray and Wallace, leave her life and job behind, pick up her family, and move to the dry gulch location of Guam. Remember we talked about Eliza Roberts earlier? She returns as Anita in this episode. So she's graduated from being a stewardess to working at the Pentagon. But also, she did the casting in this series. Talk about versatility. And the final episode is where the shoe falls on the other foot. You bet your wife. In this final episode for the season, Ray gets a temporary job in Hialeah, Florida, and makes a bet with Olivia that Wallace could fall under temptation of another woman. Ray tells her that if Wallace fights temptation, he'll take the job in Hialeah and leave for the time. If Wallace gives in to the woman, Olivia must spend a romantic night at Ray's place. Okay, fight temptation. Mike, just sing it. Just sing it right now. Said it. Just sing it. No. Sing it. No. Fine, I'll sing it then if you refuse to sing it. You can't fit the temptations. You can eat them all. This show really sucks. It's so stupid and sucks. You know, I'm glad I kept my dignity this time. Huh. Oh, wait. It gets better. Olivia disguises herself as a French temptress to win a bet regarding Wallace's fidelity and proceeds to seduce Wallace with Ray watching at the local hangout. Wait, so he becomes a cuck? Yes. Just like MacGruber. Playing Jackie in this episode, somebody we talked about this time last week, actually. Elena Reed Hall. 227 Sesame Street, Clyghorn. Yes. So, that's the show, and aside from, you know, some clever writing and some clever acting, and the chemistry is definitely there between everybody, the show itself aired on a quiet Saturday night in October, and it drew raves. And according to Tom Shales of the Washington Post, Tartly the Stuff of Laugh riots and the comic tone of much of the dialogue is woefully coarse, but it succeeds with the help of its leading player. Damon Wilson, chubbier and hairier than he was for five years on Sanford and Son, proves an actor capable at far more than being a straight man to a junk man. And Denise Nicholas, who starred on the old ABC series Room 222, is welcome and refreshing as the abandoned wife, though the character has been written along largely stereotypical lines. The most obvious cliche on the premises, however, is Helen Martin as Wilson's fire-breathing mother-in-law, Luzelle. When it comes to crowd-pleasers, nothing on the program can compete with Kim Fields and Tony Holmes as the two kids. They're not exactly actors, but kids on TV don't have to be. 
They're just terribly cheering, incredible little presences. The best scene of the show is the one in which the kids are alone together with the other characters and their battles, and the show's itchy gas reflex have been stilled. So, the show aired on Mondays in between Good Times and MASH. That is prime real estate, if you think about it. There was one problem. It was 1978, so network execs were not as forward-thinking as they are right now in 2024. The show could have been the best thing to air that night. I I mean, obviously wasn't because it was on the same night as Good Times, MASH, One Day at a Time, and Lou Grant. But if there was a single cause for the demise of Baby I'm Back, if you could look at one thing and point to it like, this is why the show was canceled. It was good times. Norman Lear, who was producing good times for CBS at the time, wanted one final season of the show, and CBS, not wanting two urban shows on the same schedule for some reason, was happy to oblige the higher-rated good times. According to Leela Garrett, Lear told CBS that he would create another show for them in exchange for that final season. That show was future entry in the beginning with McLean Stevenson. Wow. Ask for what you wanted, get what you got. But hey, what could you do? Anywho, reruns of the show aired in the late 80s to early 90s on BET. The show itself was never given a home release, but the entire run can be streamed right now for free on YouTube. Not that this show proved to be career death for anybody involved, except maybe for Tony Holmes, because he didn't do much after, but Denise Nicholas, Helen Martin, Devon Wilson, and of course Kim Fields did... But, yeah, a lost piece of black television briefly making a blip in the late 80s and early 90s thanks to reruns on BET because, hey, Helen Martin was back on top thanks to 227, and this is her at her acerbic prime, if you think about it. Did we mention the next regular series that Demond Wilson did after this show? The new odd couple. Oh. But that's an entry for another time. In the meantime, Baby I'm Back was really well written and really well acted. But thanks to some behind the scenes chicanery on the network level, it just became a thing on TV. We never did find out if Denise Nicholas and Damon Wilson ever got back together, but I suppose that would be the end of the series, though, would it? Hey, you know what's fun? Talking about Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour. It's time for This weekend Match Game. Hollywood Squares. Hour. History. Start with the late update. This is 
week 17. This is the last full week of February of 1984. And this week we have Ken Kerchival, Nathan Cook, Deborah Sue Maffett, Fanny Flagg, Robert Donner, America's Darling in 1984, Nidra Voles, Richard J. Porter, and Gordon Jump. Please tell Dudley and Arnold not to go to the bike shop. Now, last week we had a contestant, Mark Bird, who we called Epic Porn Stash Guy. This week, Greg, oh. just say it. Oh, this is the week of my absolute joy from this show. A contestant that I refer to as Katie DeZameda. And why do you call her that? Because look at her hair. It's lovely. Look at her smile right here in my Zoom background. She's a lovely woman. She is an absolute darling. And you can tell when you watch her, she is just as beautiful inside as she is outside. She's a good sport. She's a good player. It's a shame we only had her for two episodes, but... No, three! Oh, three three. episodes! Oh, even better! So this week, the telephone match continued, and the telephone match, in case you forgot, they wanted to find five winners. So it continued until they had five winners, and they got the fifth winner in this week. In terms of head-to-head match wins this week, John Bauman won our dear Katie $10,000 on the Monday episode. John won another person $5,000 on the Wednesday episode. Then Nathan got into the act winning $5,000 on Thursday. And finally, Nathan, he matched John for the week. He gave away $10,000 on Friday. So John and Nathan both gave away $15,000 that week. Next week, though, no Katie the Tomato, obviously, so we can't fawn over her. But we have one of those memorable weeks. Not going to spoil it, but it's one of those weeks not unlike, say, Believe It Beaver Week. Except no Gallagher. And no smashing of watermelons and hitting Richard Deacon in the face. Chico, here you go. Wrap up the episode. Well, as much as I want to look at Katie the Tomato, we got to close out the episode. So we'll just say... All of our episodes are available, and it was a thing on TV. We're talking about 455 mainline episodes, plus all of the bonus materials, all of the mini-sodes, live watches, the whole works. We're on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, Mastodon, at It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where it's It Was A Thing On TV podcast. And remember, if you're following us on Mastodon, Search for it was a thing on TV at tvwatch.party. And of course, the Friday drops every week at Place of Mediation Pop. If you're listening to this on Friday, man, what a amazing week of shows we've done. But hey, we got more stuff to come next week. But before we do that, remember, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts we streamed it over Apple Podcasts. Tune in, iHeart, Audible, etc. And if you're on the YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button, subscribe to our channel, hit that notification bell so you can stay up to date on all future uploads, including us wrapping up our Tribute to Black History Month with CBS looking for its own Mr. Black. And we talked about it in passing 
in the first episode this week. What happens when you give two beloved entertainers a show? And also, one of the kids ends up becoming a nerd in the future? Hmm? But that's not all. Because my dear friend Mike, the man who shares my love of game shows, trivia, and a whole lot of other things, is celebrating a birthday. And he's inviting us to get absolutely mental. But this man is a very decent guy, I must say. He's a little bit obsessed with Pat Sajak, I must say. You're talking about the TV show and not me. Yes, we're talking about Ed Grimley, Stilly. I know, I just wanted to clarify for the listeners. That is coming up next week, right here on It Was a Thing on TV. For Greg, for Mike, I'm Chico. Thank you ever so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Wow! Let me say that one more time loudly. R. A. Second! He could just say it, could he? No, that's vintage doggy right there. Dang.